I always use the example, uh, you know, when you're speeding um, and you get pulled over, you know, ignorance is never a defense, right? To right. say, oh, I didn't know the speed limit was only 25 and I was going 50. That's not going to pass muster. Um, nor is if the Department of Labor comes in and does an audit and you say, oh, I had no idea there was a difference between exempt or non-exempt. Welcome to Mission to Grow the small business guide to cash, compliance, and the war for talent. I'm your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we'll bring you experts in accounting, finance, human resources, benefits, employment law, and more. You'll learn ways to access capital through creative financing and tax strategies, tactical information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, and people strategies you need to win the war for talent. Mission to Grow is sponsored by Assure. Assure helps more than 100,000 businesses get access to capital, stay compliant, and develop the talent they need to grow. Enjoy the show. Salaried or hourly? Understanding exempt classifications. Hi, I'm Mike Fennell, your host of Mission to Grow. This is a really, really, really important topic for small business owners, especially mid-size all that this, we're talking laws you must comply with that many don't realize it. I uh, got a super cool guest to unpack this topic for us. Uh, she's a SHRM certified professional. The last eight years, she's been an adjunct professor at the New York Institute of Technology. Uh, she was the director of HR consulting for a 58-year-old HR consulting firm in New York. And she is our vice president of HR compliance at Assure. Welcome to the show, Mary Simmons. Thank you, Mike. Okay. So this one's, this one's I think, deceiving because a lot of business owners think they have a choice here, Right. This, that's why we name the show salary versus hourly. But if you're a business owner, if you're a manager, what's the one thing that growing companies must understand about classifying salary versus hourly employees? Yeah, that's it's a great question. I get asked it all the time. And what the first thing they need to understand is there's a piece of federal legislation that they have to follow, and that's the Fair Labor Standards Act, commonly called uh, wage and hour law. And so they have, they don't have the choice. And a, a lot of times I'll hear from the employers, but my employee Mike wants to be salaried. And I'm like, yeah, but you have to follow these regulations and they're very specific. So they have to be very careful to follow these regulations that we're going to discuss today. Yeah. So I, I think this is classic mistake. It's like, a lot of times an employer will say, oh, you know what? I, I just want to even out their pay and make their pay more predictable, right? Or, uh, hey, I want to give them an opportunity for overtime. It, but this isn't really your decision to make. This isn't opinion. This isn't the employee's opinion. That There are laws that dictate how you classify employees, right? Exactly. And I think the other piece that they need to understand, not to scare people here, but that there's real fines, there's huge fines, right? So if you misclassify somebody, the wage and hour claims right now outtrend your uh, any other kind of claims, right? Anti-harassment gets lots of uh, publicity, but yeah. wage and hour outtrends it, you know, four to one. Yeah. So so maybe just take us through, what, what are the fundamental differences between, and I'll use the term hourly versus salary, because I think this is a lot of how, uh, business owners think about it, but it really is exempt versus non-exempt. Maybe just first help with the the, the definition of what that actually means, uh, and, and then what are the what are the what are the legal differences? 
Exactly. So salaried is exempt employees. So they are exempt from overtime. The hourly employee is non-exempt. So they are not exempt from overtime, meaning that when they work over 40 hours in a week or in California over eight hours in a day, they're entitled to overtime pay. And that overtime pay is um, based on the Fair Labor Standards Act. Of course, employers can do more is time and a half of their salary, uh, their hourly rate. And and so what is the impact on compensation to the employee uh, one versus the other? So, so it's exempt from overtime. Is it, is it just as simple as that? One class gets overtime, the other one doesn't. Uh, how, how, how does an employer think about that? Yeah. So there, there are a lot of nuances here that we have to think about. So let's just break it down a little bit more. That salaried employee gets a set base salary on a weekly basis, but it's based on their annual salary. So literally, no matter how many hours that employee works, they're going to get the same salary, the same set uh, paycheck once a week. That hourly worker, on the other hand, is paid an hourly rate. And again, that hourly rate is going to be based on um, the fe- either the federal minimum wage or if the state has a higher minimum wage, the employee has to get the better um, of that you know, minimum wage, be it the state or the federal. And so that hourly worker, Mike, gets paid for all the time they work. And this, again, when we talk about how this affects the bottom line for the employer, is we really have to think about getting paid for every um, hour that you work. And, and I would even say it's every minute that they work. So as an employer, when you think, oh, Mike left for his shift, but I have an unanswered question for, for a client and we call Mike, if he's an hourly worker, he gets paid for the time he's working, even if it's answering an email, answering a call, answering a text, et cetera. So right. that's a big difference for employers to think about because we all know, right, that it most times our our pay for our employees is our largest expense. That's where an area where so many employers get in trouble in these wage and hour laws, right? Because correct. Well, I I just the client just had a question, so I just shot him a quick text, right? right. right. Well, if they're if they're off the clock, and you shoot them a text, and they respond to that text, that was that was hourly work, right? That that, that you 100%. are legally required to pay them for. And I would, yeah, yeah. I think they they also get in trouble because they try to, you know, make up, you know, some rules or maybe not thoroughly understand the rules that we're discussing here, which is that they get time and a half when they work over 40 or over eight hours in California. Even if the employee says, oh, don't worry about it, Mike. I don't need time and a half because I worked 45 hours can I just come in five hours late on Monday? So right. it sounds good to the employer. They think they're making the employee happy. You cannot contract around the law, meaning you can't make up um, or go awry of these regulations. They have to be followed very specifically. So so 
what are some of the requirements for actually classifying? How, how does an employer know how to classify employees properly? So when they're thinking about classifying the employee exempt versus non-exempt, there's the first thing that you want to consider. And let's talk about exempt first. The exempt employee, again, is exempt from overtime and they're being paid a salary in most cases. There are some exceptions, Mike. Um, but for now, let's just focus on that exempt employee. So just a quick thing that I want to tell employers is that be very careful about breaking that exemption. If you have called that employee exempt, don't treat them like a non-exempt employee by saying, oh, Mike, I, I see that you worked 45 hours. You're such a hard worker. I want to reward you by paying you time and a half for the five hours you worked overtime. If it's an exempt employee, what the Fair Labor Standards Act will say is you, you may break their exemption by treating them like a non-exempt employee and paying them overtime. So be very careful, again, when we're classifying an employee as exempt, treat them as an exempt employee. Right. Can I give a couple of use cases? Tell me, tell me if this, if, if this, am I getting this right? So Go if ahead. I'm an employer, I have a, a, a manager of a, of, a, of a retail operation and they regularly work more than 40 hours a week. Maybe they're regularly 45, 55 hours, sometimes even more during the busy season. Um, and I don't change their pay uh, because it was a longer work hour week uh, versus a short. Uh, that's, that's what the exemption is really for. Higher salaries for folks because some of those regular, those hours are irregular. But if I have a manager who is just based on the definition of their job, they work a 40 hour week. Um, and I decide to thank them for having, you know, it was a long week this week and I, Maybe not time and a half, but maybe I decided I'm just going to spot bonus you. Could Wage and Hour come in and say, oh, you bonus people when they work extra hours. You're really treating them, even though it's not time and a half, you're compensating them for hours worked. You just broke the ex exemption. Am I stretching it too thin there? No, I think that's a, that's a really great example because I do want to say that you can reward your exempt employees and you can re reward them by giving them extra pay when they work overtime. It's the way that you reward them um, and the way that that pay is dispersed. So you actually said, I want to give them a spot bonus that you can do, um, but there's certain ways to do it. And really, I want you know, you to, whether it's my team or other professionals or your, your, you know, payroll professionals that are assisting you with your payroll, you really want to consult with a professional before you do that. It's something that really needs to be done in a very precise way so that you don't break that exemption. So that was a great differentiator to explain to people that it can be done. It's the way you do it so you don't break that exemption. So you're not treating them like a non-exempt person. There's a great example, Mike. It, it, and Mary, am I thinking, about, this, is, this is maybe too, just too rare of a case to be super useful, but just so I understand it. It probably matters whether you're treating that extra compensation as, hey, I'm going to pay you the hourly rate or I'm going to bonus you based on X number of hours. If, if you treat the compensation, whether it's bonus or 
a calculation, if it's based on hours worked, I would think you're on really thin ice. If you base it on, hey, great jobs, you worked super hard this week, I just want to recognize you for that extra effort and maybe the extra level of stress and difficult customer you dealt with this week, then that's probably safe ground. Is that is that a reasonable division? It is. It is. Um, and see, I think the basic differentiator that we, you know, m- maybe um, I need to define again is your salaried person is not getting an hourly rate. Right. Right. So to say I'm going to pay you time <clears throat> and a half of your hourly hourly rate is an incorrect, um, you know, calculation, right? right? Because they're working variable hours um, in most cases. So there isn't um, that that calculation would be very difficult to put your finger on. And again, they do not, they are exempt from overtime pay. So that that's the basic assumption that you want to work on here. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe the last thing I'll say on it, and we'll, we can move on. Yeah. Uh, if you if you bonus the employee, and you have if you define the criteria, maybe it's certain level of productivity. Maybe it's just hey, happy birthday, whatever. That's the reason you're you're probably safe ground. But if you treat that salaried employee and say hey, your salary equates to this as an hourly rate, I want to pay you time and a half on that. You're clearly treating that person as an hourly employee. That's where you would get in trouble. Correct. Perfect. You're learning. Yeah. You're doing great. <laughs> I'm a I'm a slow student, but I'm getting not at all. Not at all. I think that's helpful for everybody listening. And then, so let me just go a little bit further. So, when yeah. we talk about the exempt employee classification, typically the Fair Labor Standards Act has set forth guidelines, and it's usually going to be one of the white collar exemptions. So that would be the administrative, the professional, the executive, or it'll be the computer or the outside sales roles. Now there are other exemptions um, that, you know, we have discussed on, on other podcasts, but we're going to really just try to define the difference between exempt and non-exempt. And those are the most um, readily used exemptions. Um, So that's the other factor. So number one, they're exempt from overtime. Number two, they're by definition of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, they fall under the administrative, professional, executive, white collar exemption or the computer exemption or the outside sales exemption. And so when, you know, somebody listening may say, okay, how do I know whether they fall under those exemptions? The Department of Labor has defined duties tests for each of those exemptions. So what does that mean? So again, a lot of times employers will say, well, Mary, I really want Mike to be exempt because that's what he wants. He wants a set salary so that he can, you know, help with his finances at home. Well, that's super nice, but the Fair Labor Standards Act says that we need to follow the duties test. It's the responsibilities that each position um, has that defines whether or not they're exempt or non-exempt. So, for example, to fall under the um, executive 
exemption that I just discussed, which is a very popular one. It, one of the main criteria for the duties test is that you manage two or more people for the majority of your day. So a Home Depot manager may not pass that duties test because although they may manage more than two people, uh, most of their day they're stocking shelves and helping clients, which is a non-exempt responsibility. So there's a lot of, of criteria, definition, and really examination of the duties that each um, employee does. And, and let me say, instead of employee, I want to say position, right? Because if you and I are both cashiers, and let's just use you know a, a big box store as an example, if we're both cashiers, if we have the same exact job title, then our job... Um, duties should be the same and our exemption should be the same. Now that you could change that if you were a team lead cashier and I was just a cashier for sure. But if we have the same job um, title, we have the same job description and that duties test is going to come out the same um, for our exempt or non-exempt classification. I think we probably need to dedicate, <clears throat> excuse me, dedicate a show to nothing but the details of of those categories. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about the most common areas and maybe the common reasons why people get mis misclassified? Uh, you know, what what are the exemption categories that people think they qualify but maybe don't? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that instead of really looking at the duties um, that the employee is doing, responsibilities that the employee is doing, and then comparing it to the Department of Labor's um, criteria is what what kind of gets people into trouble, right? I yeah. think they think um, that the job title will drive the exemption. Right. So if I call somebody a manager, they're automatically um, have the executive exemption. I think the administrative exemption is very uh, misunderstood and, and rightly so, right? When you hear, oh, there's an administrative exemption, I have an administrative um, executive, and um, they're automatically exempt, you know, so they're thinking the title drives the exemption. It's right. those responsibilities that drive that exempt exemption. So that is the, the misunderstanding. And that's why it does really take somebody who has done this time and time again to guide you and help you. This is probably one of the most important areas and the thing that we spend a majority of our time because it touches everything um, that you do in an HR function, right? Because it's how you pay them, how they work, how they're compensated, um, an evaluation, et cetera, and it protects the company from all the fines uh, that can come if it's done incorrectly. And, and I'll just say, I mean, uh, being, you know, growing up as an entrepreneur myself and, you know, time in corporate America, time as an entrepreneur and, and, and both today, um, I understand the urge to try to slot these things in ways that help the employee and drive the culture you want. I mean, I just tell, telling myself, I remember I had, had an issue years ago where uh, building an inside sales team and I just didn't want a culture where they felt like they were punching a clock. I wanted them to feel 
like they were leveling up in their career and I want them to go above and beyond in their effort. And uh, the reality is I, I, I couldn't because wage and hour law is really specific. It's, it says that job is, is it, 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 there's no exemption. Right. Absolutely. But, but if it's an outside sales job, uh, now they might actually just work from their home and dial the phone and it might not even be that much different, but the law is clear An outside field rep versus an inside rep. The law is clear how you must classify them. Absolutely. It's, it's very clear. And I, and I do think that a lot of times employers want to help their culture by making their employees happy right. and paying them the way they want. But I also do feel that sometimes an employer might say, well, I'm going to make that employee exempt so that I don't have to pay overtime. And so the last threshold that we have to meet here to classify an employee as exempt is their pay. So very often employers don't realize that uh, for a salaried employee, there's a minimum salary that they have to give. So right now, the Fair Labor Standards Act sets that as $684 a week. Now, many states, California, New York, Colorado, Washington State, I can go on and on and on, have a higher uh, set salary um, yeah. weekly. Um, but the federal FLSA minimum salary uh, for an exempt employee is $684. You cannot classify an employee as exempt and pay them less than that. Um, but even more important that I really want people to understand is that that is most likely increasing in April of this year to $1,059 a week. Mike, this is the biggest piece of legislation I've seen, the biggest change in probably four or five years because Look at those numbers, 684 to $1,059. Mike, this is a big deal for employers. Uh, we've been talking about it, you and I. Um, really need employers to dig in here, uh, do a FLSA audit, which we do for employers all the time. How much is this going to cost you? Are you classifying your employees properly? This is almost twice as much money, Mike. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm just not seeing enough in the news about this, and I'm, I'm, I'm scared to death that employers are going to get caught flat-footed here. It's almost and so, large. And if, if, if you're an employer, if you're, if you're in an industry where, where most of, most of your employees are legitimately categorized as exempt, and they're more highly compensated, maybe you're in technology or you're in an industry uh, that, that, that's just the standard, then maybe you don't have a problem on your hands. But there are Hundreds of thousands of businesses. I think the estimate is something around two and a half, three million employees are going to be impacted by this. That maybe your your maybe your retail, maybe your customer support. Uh, that you're a quote unquote exempt, therefore salary employee, but right. you're you're being paid somewhere in the call it forty forty five thousand dollar range, perhaps. Right. You're talking ten thousand or more annual raises for folks that by law you're going to have to give. I mean, that's enough to break many companies. So it's, it's going to, here, here's what I think you and I have talked a lot about this. Right. It, a, you got to get ahead of this because the law is going to require you to pay these people more. 
But that's if you've been properly classifying them in the first place. I think what this is going to really force people to do is properly classify a bunch of $35,000, $40,000 a year compensated people who should have been hourly all along. Am I thinking about that right? You, uh, you 100% are. And I, you know, a lot of times when, we, when I get on a call with a California or New York um, employer, they sort of know, you know, hey, there, there's a lot of employment laws here. You know, uh, I really need your help. Um, but some states don't have as many uh, state employment laws. So they're not focusing on the federal laws. And so the federal minimum wage is only $7.25 an hour. So if you're in a state that hasn't increased that minimum wage, right, that hourly um, wage for, for employees, your salaried employees probably mirror that. Right. So right. if you're only paying your hourly people seven dollars and twenty five cents, because that's all you have to pay, which is absolutely fine. And you're paying your exempt employees six hundred and eighty four a week. I hope this is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. And you yeah. also are going to have some compression. Right. So if you have yeah. that entry level manager that, like you said, is making forty five but their manager is making 55. Now they're both making 55. So it's right. not just bringing that, that lower level manager up to this new minimum. And when I say it may come to pass, right, it, it's not definitive yet. And it got shot down once uh, about three or four years ago, but I really think it's going to go through this year. But don't just think about bringing that person up and that cost to you. What happens to the manager. Now you're going to have an entry level manager making the same as an experienced manager. So this may cost employers even more money. And again, Mike, we never yeah. say this, you know, I, I don't mean to scare em employers. Let's just look at it. You know, I'm always happy to, to get on a quick call with anybody um, and, and just walk through this slowly for your organization. But this can have a huge monetary impact on a lot of employers. Yeah, yeah, no, no question. Um, and, and if you think about going back to intent, I, I believe, like I don't, I don't believe that the, it's the government's intent here to, to just simply pay people more. I think the intent here is to make sure that people are classified properly so that they do get compensated for, their, for, for overtime, right? So uh, I, I think we both know and, and I'll give entrepreneurs the benefit of the doubt. I, I don't. I don't think there's a bunch of entrepreneurs trying to really just squeeze every single penny out of out out of their their their, their teams. The reality is, people have choices. Unemployment is three point seven percent. They're employees will leave if they're not treated well. Right. No, so well, you're one hundred percent right. But if you don't, if you don't qualify for the uh, the the duties uh, to 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 be an exempt employee, but you're working. 45, 50, 55 hours a week, you're legally entitled to overtime, right? Right, um, right. And this is going to make sure that those employees, either they're getting paid more or they're just going to get classified right, which then creates another problem for employers. How do I, how do I manage this? Do, do I, am I going to, if I got a team of 10 people, am I going to have to now be a team of 11 people that, you know, the same amount of work always? Yeah, communicating it, right? 
how are you communicating? You know, you have a a manager and you re-examine it and you say, you know, they really don't fit that executive exemption. They should have been non-exempt. I'm going to make them hourly. How do you communicate that? You know, you could see where some managers may feel that that's negative. And, and I would add um, that this salary, this minimum salary for exempt employees, I don't think it's increased in 15 years. So that's why the jump is so significant because they haven't increased it slowly uh, with inflation. So yeah. hopefully, you know, that's done in a, in a more precise uh, and prescriptive way going forward. Yeah. Mary, what other, whatever other factors should employers be thinking about? You know, so, so first of all, there's just the law. What does the FLSA say about the Dewey's exemptions? Do they qualify or don't they, don't they qualify? We'll do a separate show just on those ta- topics administrative, professional, executive, computer, or outside sales roles. There are very specific requirements for each. We'll unpack those at at a different time. Uh, uh, Other than the duties test, you talked about the increase in the minimum salary for exempt employees and the compression that that could cause. What other considerations should employers be thinking about here? Um, I'm going to throw in a couple things here just for, you know, just to take a little bit deeper dive. So that was exempt. Now, when we talk about our non-exempt employees, so they're not exempt from overtime. I think it's a little confusing, the terminology. um, They're paid hourly. So again, that hourly employee, when they go past 40 hours in a week, they're paid time and a half. Again, California, it's over eight hours in a day. Again, for employers, you cannot make exemptions to this. Now, uh, there are some um, like civil servant employees that uh, can be paid differently, Right. So there are some nuances. Right. HR, I never say never and I never say always. Um, But for the most of the um, employers out there, you're not making an exempt, you know, an exception to this. So you have to follow the minimum uh, salary um, for your state or municipality. So here in New York, New York City is paid different than upstate New York. um, And, you know, and downstate, right? So there's three different salaries. California, same thing. LA can be different from another county. So you have to be really careful that you're paying your employees the exact um, hourly rate that they should be paid. But I was speaking with an employer the other day who was saying, gee, Mary, you know, overtime is really costing me a lot of money. And I might have to lay somebody off because you know, this it's just not working. They come, you know, it was a heating and air conditioning organization. They drive to my office, they pick up the truck, and then they drive to the work site. So even before they start work, they're not doing anything but driving um, to, you know, one of the work sites, maybe an hour away, it could be an hour and a half away. Well, there is some, you know, when it comes to your non-exempt employees, for uh, driving hours, for mandated training hours. You can pay them the federal minimum wage for those hours uh, versus the state minimum wage. 
So there's nuances here that employers may not know en- enough about um, if you're not really, you know, an expert like uh, my team and I are on the Fair Labor Standards Act, right? So some other nuances that um, non-exempt and exempt differences are your non-exempt employees, again, they have to be paid for all hours. So if you say, hey, we have mandatory OSHA training and the only time I can fit it in is after five o'clock, your non-exempt employees, you have to pay them for those training hours. Again, your exempt employees, they're paid a set rate. So they're going to get their salary, even though they worked, you know, after five o'clock or, you know, maybe that makes it 41 hours in their week instead of 40 hours. Uh, but your non-exempt employees, right? They're not exempt from overtime. They receive overtime pay. Even though that's training hours, Mike, they must be paid for those hours. So there, yeah. there's a lot of information here. Those exemptions um, affect a lot of nuances that that happen in the pay and the compensation um, for our employees. Mary, our, our, our mutual friend, Brian, and I, we, we did a podcast on this topic just talking about the uh, uh, drive time, you know, from from home to office, from client to client, and what's what, what, what you what you must and must not pay. Let's just maybe rattle off some of the other biggies for. for so if, if you're if you're an HVAC company, you're a, a, a service organization where your your employees go from location to location. Uh, that that's fine, but a lot of businesses aren't. There's still other ways they get in trouble. I think you hit on one. Uh, I, I think another is maybe, oh, you don't have to come, but we encourage you to come to this <laughs> training because if you really care about your career, you're going to want to develop your skills. But it's voluntary, so we, you know, it's 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 not compensatory time. What what say you? Yeah, no, that's that's a great example. I'll give you another one. A lot of employers, um, you know, of course, we know this being a payroll company, a lot of employers will automatically deduct a half hour or an hour for uh, lunch. Now, that's fine. That's all well and fine. But this is why we do customized handbooks, because you better be very prescriptive in your handbook policy when you talk about uh, what happens if they end up working during that lunch hour. If your non-exempt employee is working during their lunch hour, you must pay them. And that includes your receptionist who is sitting at their desk eating their sandwich and you ask them to still pick up the phone. Yeah. So they have to be paid that they get wrong all the time. And those automatic deductions you're going to put in your, you know, policy for, you know, lunch periods, right? It's automatically deducted. If you work during those hours, you know, you have to give them information on how they go to their manager or the payroll manager um, to get paid for those hours. It's okay to put the onus on the employee, but you have to watch it very, very carefully. And Mary, like in my example, I, I think a DOL auditor is going to be going to come in and say, okay, you may have said that was optional, but if it advances their career, your staff feels pressured to, to participate or not participate, that's compensatory time, right? 
Yeah, it's, yeah, there's going to be a lot of variables there, but for the most part it is. And and listen, I would say training helps your organization be right. more productive and your employees more engaged. So right. I would find a way to pay them for their training um, because yeah. it just makes for a better organization. It, and, a better and, I, and I've seen organizations that do this and, and I know I know that they think that they're doing it in a legal way. But culturally, it's just clearly understood that if you don't go to the trainings, you're not going to advance, not just because of the skills you don't acquire, but because you're not going to be considered part of the overachiever group, right? And if you're setting up that kind of culture, you're for sure on very, very, very thin ice that if there's not, you could, you could be retroactively paying all those folks for years, right? It, right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you're you're making a really good case where we will say you should be recording the hours that your exempt and non-exempt employees work. So you know you're doing you're recording the hours that your non-exempt employees work. And a lot of times um there's ways to track exempt as well. And the reason that we would say it is because if you misclassified an employee and you said they were exempt. The DOL comes in and says, no, we feel based on the duties test that that employee was not exempt. It's your word against that employee on how many hours they worked. So they can yeah. say they worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And now you owe them that back pay on overtime. And if the employee was with you for 10 years, uh, it's pretty easy to do the math and and see how that can add up to a lot of hours. And and listen, it's it's so easy now um, to track hours, you know, on their cell phone, et cetera, keystrokes, et cetera. It's it's so easy to track time that it really doesn't need to be onus on the employee or the employer. But tracking time certainly for your non-exempt employees is paramount, especially when you're, you know, in a FLSA audit and the DOL comes knocking and, and they're looking at all your records. You have to have really good records. I'm curious about one more use case and let's, and then we'll kind of talk to consequences and enforcement here. Um, company gatherings, maybe it's the summer picnic, maybe it's a holiday uh, party. Um, if you're an, ex if you're a non-exempt employee, you're paid hourly Technically, you'd think the summer picnic is optional. You don't have to attend. But if you feel the the pressure, like, oh, you're, you're going to be looked down on poorly. It's going to impact how your level, opportunities for advancement at work if you don't show up to the company function. Is this is that compensatory time? Do you, do you need to be paid and, and if you show up to the to the quote unquote voluntary company functions? I haven't seen that um, from the DOL. Could it happen? Maybe. I think that's why I always talk to employers about communication and how important communication is, right? Um, and it's one thing coming from, you know, maybe there's an email sent out from the president or the CEO of the company saying, you know, can't wait to see everybody at the holiday party, et cetera. But you also have to be careful to talk to the managers. How are they communicating it to their employees? Yeah. You're absolutely right. If, if now your manager says to their employees, you better be there or else, 
Now you've put that employee into a position where they feel it is mandatory and you could get in trouble from not paying them. But if it's communicated in a proper way, and in most cases, it's, you know, you know, hope you can come, can't wait to see everybody. Um, and it's not stated in a mandatory way. The employer yeah. probably does not have to compensate the employees for doing it. But this is why manager training is paramount. They're yeah. your feet on the ground, right? They're the ones that are touching your employees. So anytime there's, you know, a mass communication, look, switching your employees from exempt to non-exempt, that's a professional conversation. We want to make sure that it's done professionally and compliantly. So your managers need to be trained by a professional uh, and and given a script because they're not HR professionals. That's not their main job, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, and just a, you know, little bit of guidelines on, you know, talking to the employees about the company picnic or holiday party, I think that's useful as well. So that's a really good example. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk enforcement and consequence. How, how do these things, how do these things usually pop up? Cause I give most employers the benefit of the doubt there. I think it's very rare that you have an employer who is some Machiavellian smoking cigar in the, in the dark room. How do I take advantage of my employees? These things happen accidentally. People aren't intentionally trying to exploit other humans in, in, in break of the law, but there's naivete about the law. How, how do these things usually pop up? Yeah. And I, I always use the example, uh, you know, when you're speeding um, and you get pulled over, you know, ignorance is never a defense, right? To right. say, oh, I didn't know the speed limit was only 25 and I was going 50. That's not going to pass muster. Um, nor is if the Department of Labor comes in and does an audit, and you say, oh, I had no idea there was a difference between exempt or non-exempt. Um, but beyond that, you know, the DOL does come and do audits and quite frequently and they're on the rise. Obviously, they were, you know, their auditors were, you know, working from home during COVID. Um, but the other thing that happens very often, Mike, is employees start talking to their friends. And their friends are saying, wow, uh, you know, my check this week was so big. You know, I I'm treating when we go out for drinks. Um, and when the other employee, the other friend who is employed someplace else says, what do you mean your check was bigger this week? And they say, oh, I got a huge overtime check because I worked so many overtime hours. And the friend says, well, wait a minute. I worked a lot of overtime hours and that never, I don't get overtime. Um that is very often what happens, right? Your employees very often can be more educated um, than, than the employer may be or a small business owner may be. And that's why anybody listening, you're one step ahead because you are looking at this and you're informing yourself about it. Your next step, of course, is to consult with a professional. But very often what happens is the employee will go forward to the Department of Labor and uh, make a claim that they've been misclassified. And that, that probably is what happens most often the rest of the time. It's DOL actually just door to door knocking on businesses and saying we're coming in to do an audit. Yeah, I mean, I would really encourage employers to think about this. I, 
we talk to business owners every day that's like, well, I've never been audited. I don't think I'm breaking the law. It's fine. So they don't feel the sense of urgency to do anything. And we hear this a lot, Mary. It's, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're like a family here. My, my, my employees aren't going to sue me. If I'm wrong, they're going to they're gonna forgive me. I mean, we'll, we'll work it out there. It, and maybe those aren't the exact words that are expressed, but it's kind of understood. Well, that's fine. Maybe you have inappropriately classified someone as exempt. You're not paying them over time. Um, or they're, they are properly classified, but they take the occasional email from home. They take the occasional weekend call about a troubled client, and it's only a minute here, five minutes there. So they think it's no big deal to get swept under the rug. Well, maybe, maybe three years ago when that person's compensation filled the tank of gas, paid the doctor bills, and they were able to feed their kids – it wasn't an issue. Maybe they didn't love it, but they it was fine. They, they, could, they, they could live with it. You know, given what's happened with inflation in this last couple of years, that, that same person who might really like you as an employer, like the company that they're working for, they're literally struggling to make ends meet. And all of a sudden, that same call they get or that email they get on the weekend about a difficult client, it's like, they know darn well they should be compensated for that. And all it takes is talking to a spouse, talking to somebody at a dinner party about that. Oh, I'll take that case for free. And now the DLL is in and you're not going to deal with that person making up for the last paycheck. You're going to deal with a DOL audit that is going to look at every single one of your payroll records going back years. And yep. you could be paying. I mean, it's, 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 it's very common to get into hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars in retro pay. And by God, if you don't have really, really great documentation, um, they're going to take the employee's word for it. Right. Right. A hundred percent. And I, listen, we, we do have a lot of family owned businesses or businesses that have been around for years and years and years. And it feels like a family, even if it's not just because they have, you know, a low turnover rate and people have been yeah. there for years. And I would say, I think to those employers that I'm sure you want to treat those employees properly right? If you feel like, yeah. uh, you know, it's a family, continue that, that family atmosphere by educating yourself on the classification. Should um, those employees be exempt or non-exempt? Do they pass that, that duties test just so that you can, um, you know, do right by them and, and continue the positive culture that I'm sure the employer has, right? So, Education is probably the most important thing that that I would say to employers, uh, you know, to make sure that they have the best culture, but also to protect themselves against these very, very costly fines and back pay. Mary, what's the best thing? So let's let's wrap this. What 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 is your advice? What's your guidance to employers to get ahead of this to make sure that they are in fact compliant? And when they have new employees coming in, that they're compliant in these offers. I think the first thing that I want them to start with is up to date, very specific uh, job descriptions, right? So your job description is what you would take into a court of law to defend yourself from making that classification. Remember the duties test, okay? So the responsibilities that the exempt and the non-exempt employee have is what's going to drive the classification and defend it. 
So it has to be very prescriptive. It has to be clear. I would include a physical responsibility, you know, responsibilities, you know, what do they have to do? Right. If, the, if it's a manager, how many people they normally manage and you can give a range um, and what those management responsibilities include. So number one, um, job descriptions that are up to date and very, very, very specific. My, of course, advice is going to be that a professional looks at it and assists you with it. The second thing is to do an FLSA audit. So what does that mean? You're going to do your payroll run. You're going to look at your exempt and your non-exempt employees and how much money they are making, right? And is the exempt employee being paid salary, the non-exempt being paid hourly? And, and again, there are some nuances there. Um, but you know, if you have a lot of exempt employees that are maybe below that 684, which is in, enforceable right now, you know you need to increase it um, if they truly are exempt. If not, they're not exempt and, and you just got to meet the minimum uh, wage there, hourly rate. Uh, so do those two things. Th that should be done. That's something we do with employers every single year. So even if this regulation wasn't being increased in April, Mike, that would be my advice that you do every single year. All right. Very good. Mary, we could go on for a long time, but I think we covered the basics here. Uh, next time look, we, you and I get together, let's talk about the, the specific duties tests for non-exempt in all those categories. Uh, but until then, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And thanks to everybody else for joining us today. Until next week, if you liked today's podcast, if you got value, if you think a friend might get, have value, I invite you to share, comment, like, and consume this content on the platform of your choice. Until next week. That's it for this episode of Mission to Grow. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes and more episodes, visit us at missiontogrow.com. If you found this content valuable, I invite you to share it with a friend and subscribe to the show. If you really want to help, I'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Mission to Grow is sponsored by Assure. Assure helps more than 100,000 businesses get access to capital, stay compliant, and develop the talent they need to grow. To learn more about how Assure can help your business grow, visit assuresoftware.com. Until next time.